Before we get into this podcast, I have to call a penalty on Keith McMillan for premature tweeting. Uh, he tweeted that the Concordia Moorhead uh, game was over, that uh, the Cobbers had won, and so uh, I'm going to have to have you. Uh, I'm going to have to penalize you for 15 yards, take that touchdown off the board, and sit you out for the first five minutes of the podcast. Yep. Well, I probably deserve it. I've been tweeting since 2009, and it's amazing that I haven't stuck my foot in my mouth or my tweet fingers in my mouth prior to that. It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Yeah, we're going to start the Around the Nation podcast without Keith McMillan for the moment here as uh, we uh, discuss week six of the Division Three football season, starting with the game between the two top five teams. Uh, I'm Pat Coleman. I'm joined by Josh Smith, our Around the West region writer here uh, at D3Football.com. Is a, uh, a game that was, uh, you know, basically lived up to every crazy expectation you could have had for it unless you were expecting I guess a big offensive shootout we did not have that we had just about everything else yeah it was certainly an evenly matched game throughout um, both teams making mistakes at different times both teams taking advantage of the other team's mistakes at times so um, certainly an, an evenly played game I think it lived up to those expectations and certainly did so on the scoreboard as it came down to a one score game and uh, some some late heroics out of UW Whitewater Back in the first half, uh, Oshkosh had uh, control of the ball. They had control of the momentum, but couldn't punch the ball in the end zone other than the one time. They went for, uh, went for it on fourth down uh, and you know, failed in the red zone instead of taking a potential field goal an opportunity that may have come back to uh, bite them at the end, obviously, as they lost by three. Yeah, it's hindsight now to be able to look back at that play and see how big of a difference it made, but they opted not to take the three points. They go for it on, I believe it was fourth and three from the five, ball lands incomplete and instead of getting three points they end up with no points and we ultimately see the games decided by three so it's easy to look back now and say that that was a huge play felt like a big play at the moment but it felt like it might be a big play that might put Oshkosh way out in front and really shift the momentum of the game as it turns out ends up being the difference in this one. On the uh, on the other side, one of the stories that we've been following along this entire season is the quarterback situation for the Warhawks. So again, start with Chris Nelson, who is the senior, got the start in front of the largest recorded crowd in Division Three football history, and then uh, Cole Wilbur came in. And you know, for my our first opportunity getting to see him firsthand, obviously I know he's faced a pretty tough defense here in this game on Saturday, but 14 to 24 for 125 yards. It yeah, obviously the better quarterback today, but. I would say he's got some uh, he, he's got some learning curve yet left of him. Yeah, he's an underclassman quarterback, and he's certainly going to have to learn on the job here a little bit. But it's impressive how much the UW-Whitewater coaching staff trusts him. He was on the field a week ago to lead the uh, game-winning drive for, uh, for Whitewater against Platteville. He was out there again today when Whitewater had their go-ahead score. Um, you know, it, it's... It's impressive to see that the coaches are willing to turn the keys over to a sophomore and say, all right, go lead our offense, and he's come through now two weeks in a row doing so. Yeah, they started off the season, uh, you know, giving Nelson a couple of series, Wilbur a couple of series, and then, you know, often going back to Nelson, going back and forth for a while. Last two weeks, though, you know, Wilbur's come in and more or less hasn't left the game. Yeah, I, I feel like... The idea right now is to kind of ride the hot hand, and the last two weeks, Wilbur has had that. So uh, this week and last week started the same. Two series for one quarterback, two series for the other. They flip back and forth two or three times, and then just kind of see how the game's shaking out, and then they, they go with it from there. Now that said, uh, you know, three weeks ago, uh, Chris Nelson had the hot hand against Morningside. He ended up with a few more snaps and a few more pass attempts. So uh, it's, I think it's fair to say that they're probably going to keep going along with this type of format uh, for the foreseeable future. And we can't not talk about the defense, uh, especially in a 17-14 game. Um, specifically, of course, uh, we start with the interception by Vince Mason uh, at about midway through the fourth quarter, which uh, or midway or sorry, late in the third quarter, which set up a, a really short scoring drive uh, an opportunity for Whitewater at a position where you know again Whitewater having a little bit of trouble getting the offense going they got set up perfectly for just a short uh, a short drive yeah uh, sitting upstairs in the press box and being able to look down over the field you could really see um, uh, Vince Mason kind of see that play developed he dropped back into coverage recognized the short pass and broke on it very quickly uh, he went down to his knees to make the catch and if 
if he doesn't do that, he's going to score that touchdown on his own. There was nobody in front of him there. Um, as it as it stands, the Warhawks end up taking over at their own 16. Two plays later, Wilbur connects with the tight end, uh, Brent Campbell, for a touchdown, and that ends up being Whitewater's first lead of the game. And even though they gave the lead back at one point, it just felt like maybe the scales were starting to tip in Whitewater's favor. This is about as long as I can keep Keith off of the Around the Nation podcast. So, uh, Josh, I want to thank you for uh, joining me here for this uh, opening segment. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. And you can read more of Josh Smith's work every Tuesday evening in his Around the West column. Welcoming in Keith now. Keith, uh, this game had all the makings of an instant classic in Division Three. Two highly ranked teams, a highly charged atmosphere. Most fans ever recorded a Division Three football game. And a competitive game with a lead change in the final minute. All it lacked was Chris Fowler and the game day crew. But uh, it was a great week for Division Three football in general, uh, with this being the lead story. And you can come off the bench and come on in. Hey, it really was a great week all around from from the top five to to off the beaten path. And of course, we'll get to those later as we usually do. But this uh, this Whitewater Oshkosh game, two top five teams, and they they proved they both deserved to, to, to be as high as they were. Um, the thing about this game that stood out to me, of course, is is that these two teams, because they're conference rivals, because they have seen each other now, even in the postseason as well, they uh, they know each other well now, so there's no surprises. And you know, you get what you in games like this, you 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 know, you just need your team to rise to the occasion. They need to be sharp all week in practice. They need to uh, play well, and then over the course of the game, when things don't go well, team the both teams need to hang in there. And I thought. On, on Saturday, both teams did that. It was a slow start. Uh, Oshkosh led 7-0 at the half. They, they really only had one um, you know, nice drive, and it wasn't, wasn't a, a super long drive. It was a five-play drive in the first half. And then started to, the team started to feel each other out a little bit in the third quarter and then traded those touchdowns late in the fourth quarter. Uh, Oshkosh with the 11-play uh, go-ahead drive and then Whitewater 14 plays. And really, uh, at that point, trailing by uh, by four, trailing 14-10 at that point, and uh, couldn't couldn't play for a field goal. Needed to punch one in there and got that Drew Patterson run. That you know, by the time you hear this podcast, you may have already seen it as one of the play of the week candidates. But just a nice tiptoe down the sideline, huge touchdown for Whitewater in the final minute, and they stay uh, on top in the WIAC with a with a second week in a row beating uh, one of their conference rivals by a hair. Kevin Bullis, the Whitewater head coach, said after the game, uh, you know, basically they were facing uh, about a third and goal from the 14 at that point. Uh, their goal with that play, the, the little stretch play that Patterson uh, turned into a touchdown, they were just hoping to get a chunk of that yardage back. And uh, that's what it looked like he was about to get. He was going to get maybe five or six of those yards. He had uh, two guys, uh, two would-be Titans tacklers uh, on him, and then he just slipped out of both of them, managed to stay in bounds, and uh, found his way to the end zone. Yeah, and those are the most most frustrating ones defensively because, you know, it's drawn up correctly. You may have the right call on. You get bodies to the ball, and, and guys just don't finish the tackle. And and over the course of a long game, you know, we've said this over the years, Whitewater tends to wear teams down, and I don't think in general the Titans wore down on Saturday. But on that play, uh, you know, just not finishing the tackle. Uh, over the course of a back-and-forth game, you know, you may be a little bit spent in the fourth quarter, and that's why, you know, those those five-yard runs sometimes turn into to 16-yard touchdown runs late in games. The other big storyline out of this game, I think, was uh, you know, both teams had a little bit of trouble hanging on to the football. Um, you know, quarterbacks uh, running the ball, not being able to hang on uh, in a instance where you know some of those are uh, some of those are young kids making those uh, making those mistakes. You know, sometimes not necessarily, but obviously. Uh, not necessarily the big atmosphere, but just playing a, a team that, as you said earlier, of course, knows you very well. And Oshkosh and Whitewater, both, uh, you know, teams with excellent defenses. And, you know, you're going to get the balls coming out when that happens. Yeah. And, you know, you'd think with the way Saturday went with the, the remnants of Hurricane Matthew coming up the East Coast, that some of the games in the Mid-Atlantic and the South and, uh, you know, all the way up to maybe New Jersey would be affected by rain. And, and some of them were. But, to have uh, Oshkosh fumble the ball twice and lose both times, uh, to have Whitewater have three fumbles, lose all three of those fumbles in a game that was held in Wisconsin, certainly a little bit surprising. I thought the other thing that that um, was sort of unfortunate for Oshkosh, 11 penalties on Saturday. You know, you don't want to have that in a big game. 
Yeah, exactly. It was uh it was there were definitely some flags being thrown. Now, Whitewater a little bit more uh, a little bit more disciplined, only a handful of penalties there. Um, but one of the other uh, outcome, I guess, out of this, Keith, that I wanted to spotlight before we moved on was I thought the voters, again, did the right thing in terms of our top 25. Um, you know, uh, Oshkosh stays in the number five spot. They lost a few points here. St. Thomas lost a few points, uh, you know, as teams kind of shuffled around, even though uh, the Tommies didn't lose on Saturday. The, um, uh, you know, it, I thought the voters did the right thing in kind of maintaining the status quo. Yeah, and and again, you know, you're trying to measure how teams match up or or how teams are relative strength wise. And you take a look at the the way the Oshkosh game ended. There's a pass on the sideline late in that game that would have got them down to around the 30 yard line. Would have given them probably a what 37, 47 yard field goal attempt to win to try to tie the game, or they would have had you know maybe been able to run another play. So I, I mean, they're basically one catch along the sideline. From from beating Whitewater, tying Whitewater, and as a voter, you have to take that into account. So personally, I have all three Wisconsin teams well inside the top ten. Um, you know, you go back a week before for Whitewater, and uh, they beat Platteville just thirty to twenty-four. They beat Oshkosh seventeen fourteen on Saturday. So Whitewater may be number one, number two, number three on some folks' ballots. Oshkosh and Platteville can't be far behind. So as that game is coming down, um, we're gonna, uh, I saw your tweet, the one that we mentioned at the at the top of the broadcast here, um, and then I saw immediately following, I think the local writer for the uh, Fargo newspaper. So I, I retweeted that one immediately after it. I should have unretweeted yours, but no, that's not the point that I'm trying to make here. Is um, I then go out to. Uh, 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 first of all, go out and uh, shoot some video of the of the final plays of the of the game, just in case something uh, happened. You know, like Patterson's touchdown run. So that's the version that you see in the uh, play of the week uh, reel. Um, and then I go down to the field to um, you know just kind of take in what's going on down there, get maybe better video angle if Oshkosh comes back and win that game. You know, I did not find out that St. Thomas won that game until we're in between sections of the post-game news conference. I am starting to put together the top 25 roundup. I'm talking about uh, Tommy's getting toppled, and then I go to the box score to go link to it, and I realize, hey, that didn't happen. St. Thomas came back and won that game. Yeah, to be honest, I got caught up in the excitement of the moment, sent a poorly worded tweet about Concordia Moorhead's 89-yard hook and ladder touchdown to take the lead on St. Thomas with 44 seconds left. Now, I knew at the time the game wasn't over, but I certainly thought that was the dagger. Um, you know, you and you can correct your tweet with a bunch of subsequent subsequent tweets and own up to being wrong, but you can't edit the one you sent. And in hindsight, maybe I should have just deleted it, but uh, it's, I never even thought of deleting it. It's probably better to leave it out there. It kind of makes for a fun moment. You know, I, I was poking fun at, at Frank Rossi on Friday for, for quick hits and, you know, now I maybe deserve get to, to be made fun of myself. So it, it happens sometimes. And like I said earlier, it's kind of surprised I haven't done this uh, in the first seven years of, of tweeting D3 stuff in the moment. Um, so the Cobbers at that point, they, they score on this uh, 89-yard hook and ladder to take the lead 20-16. to 16. And it was, it was kind of an odd play because uh, it looked like a couple of the, the St. Thomas defensive backs had an angle on it um, and, and you know, saw the hook and ladder as it was happening. But uh, but didn't weren't able to make the tackle. Uh, Concordia Moore goes down the sideline. They go for two after scoring and uh, and get stuffed and added unsportsmanlike conduct penalty um, on onto it on the kickoff. So already um, kicking off. You know, St. Thomas gets the ball at the the fifty at this point. So anybody who's watching the game, myself included, knows it's not over. St. Thomas has a chance here. Um, but by that point, my Tweet's already been retweeted, so you know that that's gone and not coming back. Uh, who is coming back though is St. Thomas. Um, they got a pass interference call on the first play, and Alex Fenske hits Nick Waldvogel for about 22 yards. Uh, then inside the the five yard line with about eight seconds left, uh, Fenske's nearly intercepted by Moorhead's Alex Berg, and and that's one you know, he'll be kicking himself for a long time because the game's over. He steps in front of a pass. Uh, he picks that off. It's over. So now uh, uh, six seconds left, front corner of the end zone, Fenske to Wald Vogel. It's game time. And this throw, you'll see it in the in the um, play of the week 
if it's not the play of the week itself, you'll see it in the rundown. It's from the far hash to the front corner of the end zone, about 30 yards on a rope. Uh, Nick Waldvogel makes the diving catch. And, and to be honest, we really should talk about what the game means, big picture. But just so we're clear here, my tweet was wrong. It was bonehead. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> now, Keith, apologize like five times. That was not my uh, intent to get you to have to say that so many times. No, but you know what? If if you try to defend yourself, you just make it worse. So you might as well own it. You know, the Cobbers now, this is uh, nine years in a row that St. Thomas has beaten Concordia Moorhead. And some really good uh, Concordia Moorhead teams have uh, have run into the St. Thomas buzzsaw a little later in the season for a lot of them. You know, I, I'd say the Cobbers are snake bitten against the Tommies. But this time they did it to themselves. 30 yards of penalties on a game-winning drive, plus a dropped game-ending interception. On the flip side, this might be the game that really galvanizes St. Thomas, and it's certainly the one where they found out their quarterback is a clutch passer. And I tell you, too, Keith, uh, the Cobbers certainly seem snake-bitten against more than just St. Thomas in this conference. If you go back to a couple years ago with the early celebration slash too many men on the field penalty that lost in the game against Bethel, uh, then last year, they gave up two scores in the final 30 seconds to lose at Gustavus Adolphus. There's a, uh, there, you know, it's, it hasn't been a lucky couple of years for Concordia. Let's, let's uh, put it that way. Um, you know, uh, let's see, moving on. I, I think we have to talk about the Rowan Salisbury game before we go to break so we don't get any more tweets from the Profs Athletic Department. Uh, yeah, Rowan has won most of its games on the strength of its defense so far, but uh, this time around needed and got a bunch of offense. They won 34-30 uh, in a, after they had only given up 35 points in the previous four games. Yeah, and that was a pretty pretty surprising thing. Hey, you know what else is surprising? I remember a day when the Profs Athletic Department didn't even acknowledge D3Football.com. So, <laughs> is, it, is come, this better? <laughs> no, it's better. We, I'm cor- I'm kidding, of course. We've all come a long way. Um, the the Profs, I think they, they've made this thing really interesting, and it's been week to week in the end, Jack. It started out with the uh, with the Wesley loss in in week one, and then you know a couple weeks later to Christopher Newport. They, Rowan turns around, beats Christopher Newport. Salisbury's in the driver's seat. Rowan beats Salisbury. Um, and Rowan would be in, in the driver's seat right now if they hadn't uh, you know, given away a game up at Montclair State. So I, I think right now that the NJAC is the week-to-week conference. Rowan is certainly the team to keep an eye on, um, especially with the way they at, they've played defensively. And you know, against Salisbury, you're never going to shut down the run. Salisbury, more than 400 yards rushing. The key for them is the the key for against Salisbury is you know making key stops uh, when and not letting those drives get rolling because once they hit a couple of runs in a row on you they really wear down your defense. Five teams tied for first right now, uh, four games into the conference season in the NJAC. Salisbury, CNU, Frostburg, Rowan, and Wesley, all three and one in the conference. The Wesley game's coming up. Uh, you know they, they're going to figure into this. They're at Rowan uh, two uh, two weeks from now. Uh, they're at Salisbury uh, two weeks after that. That is week 10. Uh, one key f- point from the Rowan-Salisbury game that might get buried, too, is uh, Salisbury had a touchdown call back in the third quarter because of a taunting penalty. So that takes seven points off the board for the Seagulls, and they had to end up settling for a field goal on that drive. And by the way, they went on to lose by four. Yeah, and I don't know if I've ever seen that before, uh, a touchdown taken off the board because of taunting. But, you know, you mentioned that that scenario a couple years ago with Concordia Moorhead, where I don't know if I've ever seen a play uh, a score taken off the board um, when when people come off the sideline too early, which, you know, you always have the, the, the coach telling you, get back, get back, get back. Uh, but you almost never see it affect the game. And now we've seen a couple of odd penalties uh, have, have real big impact in key games. We're going to take a break uh, before we come back with the rest of our rundown, but I'd also like to take this time to mention that the Around the Nation podcast currently uh, remains sponsored by nobody. Uh, you could be reaching an audience full of Division Three football decision makers, uh, coaches who can influence decisions to replace turf, need new equipment, all sorts of things by sponsoring the Around the Nation podcast. Keith and I would be waxing poetic about your product right here before going to break. So think about it and uh, drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3sports.com. I felt pretty good about last week's podcast, and uh, apparently you guys did as well. We had just short of a thousand listeners to the Week Five edition in those all-important Live Plus Seven ratings. You're missing out. Live Plus Seven—that's a thing, right? I, I don't really follow TV ratings anymore. I didn't know what that was. It's like the people watching watching it live and then watching it on their DVR within the next next days. 
I did not know that. that I'm, I'm actually glad that you measure that though, because I, I used to think about that all the time when I was DVRing something like how they're carrying it. Or counting it. Let's start the rundown with our game balls, and I'm giving mine to co-defensive back Dylan Steppleton, who was reinstated after a halftime review of his targeting call and ended up saving the game for the Cohawks in the second half. Uh, obviously, you know, we don't have instant replay, at, at least not in any of the first 14 weeks of the Division Three football season, uh, but the Iowa Conference coaches voted to have targeting calls from the first half of games reviewed at halftime. Uh, that review resulted in Steppleton's unejection, uh, and he had eight second-half tackles. Then, with two seconds left in the game, he blocked a field goal attempt that would have tied the game for Central and sent it to overtime. Instead, Coe wins 33-30, and they are one of your surprise unbeaten teams this week. Yeah, I mean, talk about things that, that we've never seen or we rarely ever see happen. I've, I've never seen a player get unejected before. So as long as we've been doing this, Pat, we still see new uh, things that make uh, each week exciting to cover. And speaking of exciting, this was one of those weeks. I mean, so many performances to choose from for a game ball. I really pondered going with uh, with Alex Fenske and Nick Waldvogel because of the clutch performance on the last drive for St. Thomas and to bring that whole tweet thing full circle. But I thought Washington and Jefferson wide receiver Jesse Zubik had the most game ball worthy day of all. With 17 catches for 201 yards and four touchdowns, the last an eight-yard grab in overtime that gave the Presidents a 55-52 win against Carnegie Mellon, which, I might add, got 40 carries for 160 yards and three touchdowns from running back Sam Banger. Banger certainly got uh, got his work in in that game. I know he had uh, one carry of uh, over 50 yards, and that means, you know, I like to do the math. I like to take the long out of the equation, and then you're ending up with uh, 39 carries for 103 yards. That's uh, that's uh, three yards and a, a cloud of rubber pellets there a lot pretty often. You love that joke, too. Yeah, I know. Well... I was going to talk about the Geneva Waynesburg game, which was ten to nine, and you know what? Uh, you know which one of my catchphrases I would bring up then. Um, but you know, oh, it, it's October. Baseball score. It's October. We don't talk about baseball. Come on. What? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Team on the rise. Uh, I'm going to start to, uh, with talking about Rowan because we had an unusual situation a few weeks ago, in which an uh, NJAC voter missed our top twenty-five voting deadline, and as a result, Rowan didn't end up with any votes in the top twenty-five uh, because. Our backup voter, because we always keep one around just in case, you know, somebody's on a, uh, a long road trip, um, you know, stuck in a plane, something like that. Uh, the backup voter didn't have the profs on their ballot. And then, you know, the following week, Rowan actually made that look pretty prescient by uh, losing to Montclair State. So the wins over CNU and Salisbury have definitely made Rowan relevant on voters' ballots again. And in this time, on more than one voter's ballot, they're in the top 25. You join the uh, the podcast, you listen every week, and you get the the dirty background on how the poll is put together. Oh, yeah. You want to uh, know how sausage is made. This is the place to go. For my riser, uh, let's go right to the top. I moved my number one vote from Mary Harden Baylor back to, to Wisconsin Whitewater, which I had uh, I'd started out the season with Whitewater in number one in the number one spot based on what they had coming back. Uh, and, you know, it's not that the crew did anything to lose the number one spot. It's just that this is now three straight wins over top teams. Morningside is ranked number six in NAIA. Oshkosh is number five and Platteville number seven in D3. And all those rankings are factoring in the losses to Whitewater. They came after the fact. So they're still all top seven teams. And I just don't think anyone has played a tougher stretch than the Warhawks have. I also moved Mount Union up from four to three after the dominant second half they had against Heidelberg. The Purple Raiders were leading 21-14 at halftime. They go on to win that one 50-14. And I moved uh, Oshkosh to four after the coin flip loss to um, to Whitewater. St. Thomas is, is fifth on my ballot. And to be honest, that's not a knock on the Tommies. We're, we're ranking various degrees of impressiveness here. I think there are several ways voters could handle the top five, and none of them would be wrong necessarily. I just have mine heavily weighted by impressive wins against the best competition. Yeah, I moved uh, Whitewater up on my ballot as well. Uh, that meant moving them from three to two, and Mount Union moved down a spot. Uh, I still have Mary Harden Baylor in my top spot, which I guess, if, if anything, I could probably attribute to the eye test. I just think the Crusaders have executed really well this year, and from seeing both teams in person, I just feel like... Uh, give the Crusaders a very slight edge, but boy, you can't deny that Whitewater's played some top flight competition in the past three weeks. And by the way, you mentioned Morningside as a sixth in the NAIA. They crushed the number three team in the NAIA this week. 
Um, every time, every time, the two times that uh, uh, Morningside's lost to Whitewater, those NAIA coaches, coaches and uh, voters have reacted by dropping Morningside, and Morningside keeps coming back and saying, uh-uh, we are that good. So, again, that's just a, another uh, feather in D3's cap, right? Yeah, I, I would say so. And it goes to show that a uh, top team in NAIA, uh, if uh, judging by Morningside's uh, games against Whitewater, uh, top team in NAIA could hang with some of the top teams in D3, too. Uh, yeah, it, we used to think it was maybe not that case. Remember Carol Montana? We thought they were so good when they had that run of dominance-ness? dominance, dominantness. Yeah, and, and this is an, another discussion for another day. But uh, but NAI does have some scholarships to split, so oh, I heard you know you, you you give it some thought of, of whether that would would um, create an advantage in, in terms of recruiting. But I think in reality. It, a lot of D3 schools have their tentacles so deep into the high schools in their in their state, in their area, that uh, they're very strong programs, and that's one of the reasons why they can maintain. Talking about teams moving the other direction in the poll, and uh, Hobart's certainly a team to talk about taking a fall in the poll. Uh, they'd already slid below St. Lawrence, their conference rival, last week, and, and this week's loss to RPI accelerated them falling out of the ranking entirely. In this case... Uh, the voters kind of read the leading indicators instead of the trailing ones. Although, you know, don't invest uh, based off of this because past performance, of course, is no guarantee of future results. Is that a Jim Cramer quote or something? Yeah, uh, it's one of those disclaimers they put at the end of all of those, uh, like uh, any any investing uh, commercial, basically. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, my team that'll take a fall is uh, Stevenson, which is a team that didn't lose but moved down on my ballot because the teams around them were doing so many impressive things, beating good opponents. Now, the Mustangs are 6-0, and but their opponents are 8-19. and So again, trying to think of the season holistically and not just have a linear ballot that's ranked once at the beginning and then move everyone up who wins and move everyone down who doesn't. I have to evaluate the teams Rowan has beaten the past two weeks, for instance, and ask if Stevenson has even played one team that good. The Mustangs aren't completely out of my top 25. They're 24 for me and 18th in the poll. And they'll get chances to correct the record the next two weeks, if in fact I'm wrong or if the pollsters are wrong, uh, against Pat Widener and at home against Delaware Valley. Well, we haven't talked about Whitewater now in about uh, two and a half minutes, so we have to get back to that for sure. Earlier in the podcast, uh, Josh Smith and I talked about the interception that Vince Mason made that uh, led to uh, Whitewater scoring its first touchdown and, and taking the lead for the first time in the afternoon. I talked with uh, Vince Mason after the game about that and some other things. Here for D3Football.com with Vince Mason, senior cornerback for the UW-Whitewater Warhawks as they defeated Oshkosh by the score of 17-14 uh, in a day where uh, it seemed like, especially in the first half, uh, Oshkosh had the ball for a long time. You guys were on the field a lot, but you, you guys held them early, and then you came up with a big pick late. But uh, tell me a little bit about how you guys felt in the first half, especially considering that you know they had opportunities against you and you guys were able to keep them from converting. Uh, sure. <clears throat> from the defensive side, you know, when it's, when it's our time, it's just we got to go out there and do our own job. Um, we can't be worried about the offense if they're performing or you know underperforming. Um, so it's all about one play at a time. Um, and yeah, we, we were out there a good amount, but you know, at the end of the half, it was seven zero and you know, we did our job well. And in the, uh, the second half, you set them up with your, uh, interception on the third down play, uh, at about the 16 yard line. And, uh, you know, you have gave them the opportunity to get their first lead on offense. Yeah. Um, that was a huge down. Um, our offense or defensive coordinator, you know, had a really good play call. Um, our, our front seven got good rush and, you know, made made a good football play. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially you guys over the past three weeks, right? You faced Morningside. That's a really prolific offense. Obviously, we all know what Platteville can do. Uh, and, you know, they put up a lot of yards last week. Uh, and similarly this week, I mean, obviously facing another top five team, it's it's been a bit of a, uh, a gauntlet for you guys to run here the past three weeks. Yeah, that's the cool thing about the WEAC is, you know, it's – arguably the best the best uh, conference in the country um, so you're facing very good teams week in and week out whether they're ranked or not um, you know deep respect for all the teams because there is no easy game in this conference um, so it really really helps to build who we are um, being tested like this every single week 
You guys played uh, Saturday here in front of 17,535. That's the largest uh, crowd we've ever uh, recorded for a Division Three football game. What's it like, you know, playing in front of a an, or playing in an atmosphere like this? I mean, that's that's pretty cool. Um, you know, it, I try not to notice it. Um, I'm, you know, there to play football, not to wave at people. <laughs> yeah, they were um, on defense, especially they were um, making a, you know being a good part of the game, like the 12th man, making a lot of noise, disrupting the offense. And, you know, you guys obviously have a long way to go. As you said, you know, a lot of tough games in this conference, even even uh, games from unranked teams. So how do you get you know back and get focused on the, on the teams ahead of you? Um, it's, you know, critical to look at what just happened. This So this past game, um, breakdown of what we did wrong, what we did right, what was good and bad. Um, and then once we have all that analyzed, take that in and then get ready for the next opponent. Keith, we haven't really actually talked so much about the crowd factor in this game on the podcast. He talked about how it affected the game, but I just want to talk about 17,535 people. Uh, you know, sometimes, and we make this disclaimer on our list of, of attendance figures that, uh, you know, Division Three attendance figures are often estimated, you know, often inflated. This was legit. That was a legit number as far as I'm concerned. And right now, the crowds at Wisconsin Whitewater and St. John's are sort of alternating each year in their big games. You look at that list that we've compiled uh, from our research, and most of the games are either rivalry games, Whitewater games, or St. John's home games. So, you know, Perkins Stadium is, is now become one of the tough places to play in D3. But I thought Vince Mason had it right. I mean, once when you're a player... You know, you may notice the crowd in pregame. You may notice it on the first series. You may notice it sometimes in the huddle, like right before a big play, like a big third down or something. You may hear it. But when you're in the game, you're locked in. You know, it could be 1,000. It could be 17,000 people. I think it, it's it's really not that much of a factor if you're, if you're connected to the game. Um, I don't think the noise ever gets to the point in D3 where, um, you know, offensive linemen can't hear the, the calls and stuff. Maybe it does. You know, it's been a long time since I played. Who knows? Uh, I did think that the Johnny-Tommy game, oh, sorry, I have to call it the Tommy-Johnny game, uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, in the, when St. Thomas had the ball in the end where the Johnny's students are at, there might have been a couple of times where they had some communications issues because of it. Uh, a couple of other things just to, about crowdness at this game. Um, first of all, the people on the Oshkosh side, I would guess there were probably uh, 2,500 maybe uh, Oshkosh fans on the Oshkosh uh, side of the field, which would be you know more than we're at 90% of uh, all Division Three games, even if you just counted that part of the stadium. Um, secondly, you know, uh, Perkins Stadium is built into this bowl as well. Uh, there's not as much bowl seating like it is at St. John's, but there were people sitting uh, sitting all around uh, the stadium, not just all the seats. All the seats on this massive home grandstand are full. Um, there are people sitting on the grass. It's a beautiful day for football there at that game. Um, there's people standing outside the fence uh, with, you know, I think they're uh, tailgating beverages, watching the game from a little bit further afield, but still getting a a pretty decent view out of it, um, and uh, it was a it was just an amazing atmosphere. I I, I circled that game on the calendar, thinking I was going to go I was going to go see, you know, twelve, thirteen, fourteen thousand people watch a football game, and I was uh, certainly impressed. That happened. You watched the people watch the football game. Actually, actually, I did. I went down to the sidelines a couple of times just to watch from the sidelines. I. It's hard because um, you know we got to follow 104 other Division three games at least in some capacity during a day during a game day like that, and uh, Twitter doesn't get updated nearly as well if I'm standing on the sidelines because you know sometimes that's difficult. I did. I went down down to the field just to kind of watch and soak the atmosphere in. If you're a Division three fan, you you just gotta you gotta do stuff like that. Just let the let the let Division three wash over you as I get way too. Uh, verbose, and maybe we should edit that whole stuff out. But uh, that I really felt, uh, I really felt kind of rejuvenated for the stretch run here of the season uh, because of that. No way, man! No editing tweets and no editing uh, verboseness on the podcast. All right, verbosity has to stay in. So uh, let's uh, move on. Uh, I, let's see if we can manage to not talk about Whitewater the rest of the show. I'm not sure if that's true. I'm gonna check the rundown later. Let's see. We're gonna go off the beaten path because we've 
definitely beaten a path here in this uh, in this podcast so far. So off the beaten path, I'm looking at the Mac. Uh, that's where Misericordia has been threatening to knock off teams a couple of times so far this season. Then they almost did it again on Saturday, and they had a shot in the final minute before Trevor Hill picked off Brandon Leaf's pass in the end zone with 46 seconds left to uh, preserve a 42-35 win for Kings. Misery had recovered a fumble at the Kings 48 and had uh, driven down to the 15-yard line before the pick at, uh, at, uh, you know, saved uh, Kings' victory. Well, that's also a pr- pretty appropriate nickname, Misery. Yeah, and uh, they they haven't had a whole lot of company in, in the uh, in the win column. They haven't had their own self in the win column. That I'm going to edit. That was awful. No, we're going to keep going. Go on. All right. Off the beaten path highlights. What a week this turned out to be. I mean, how do you pick just one? Merchant Marine scored 10 points in the final four minutes to rally past WPI on a 24-yard field goal with 13 seconds left. Middlebury hit its game-winning kick with almost 15 minutes left but held on against Amherst. There was the the blocked kick at the end of the Coast Central game that you mentioned back on your game balls. Pat, all those being nominated, I chose Western Connecticut blowing a 12-point lead as Massachusetts Maritime stormed back, scoring on a 70-yard touchdown pass, then a 12-play Chris Haggerty-led drive, only to have Quinn Fleeting calmly hook up with Jawad Chisholm and Austin Calameda to set up the game-winning 24-yard field goal for Western Connecticut as time expired. That's my off-the-beaten-path highlight of the week. As uh, watching some of those scores come in, it's early in the day, right? Those are noon Eastern games. Uh, those finals come in at halftime of the game that I'm at. I'm thinking there are so many interesting finishes at games that otherwise, you know, even as much as we follow Division Three, there's no way we can pay attention to all 105 games uh, with that uh, with that level of granularity. But that's uh, that's certainly a, an awesome finish to mention. And there were a bunch of them on Saturday. Uh, for my most surprising result, I'm going to go with Ithaca doubling its season scoring total and doing that for the second week in a row. Uh, this week, they beat Hartwick 50-27 to after having only scored 46 points all season. Last week, they scored 23 points after having only scored 23 points in the first three games. So Ithaca, you know, I don't know if they're uh, looking to send uh, Coach Jim Welch out uh, with, a, with a couple of uh, extra victories, but they've certainly done it so far. And, uh, you know, they in Cortland right now are going in opposite trajectories here in uh, in in uh, Welch's final season. Yeah, Mike Welch. We're expecting a hundred points from Ithaca next week. Jim Welch. We know who Jim we, Welch is. Right. Who worked with him at USA Today? That's right. <laughs> All right. Most surprising result uh, for me was uh, FDU Florham rallying from down 21-8 in the second half and kicking a 19-yard field goal as time expired. There's another one of those. And and Adam Turr and Snap Judgments had an awesome list of all these amazing finishes. And this one wasn't on it. So even th- uh, that's how great a week it was. It wasn't even a comprehensive list. Uh, that that 19-yard game-winning field goal for Florham uh, gave the Devils their first win against Lycoming since 2005 and their first win streak since starting 2010, 3-0. Who needs Malik Presley anyway? Not Mount Union. Apparently not. This is a guy who has no stats for Mount Union. I did not uh, dive into this particular week's box score, but through week five. Um, let's see. My stat of the week is not Mount Union receivers. It's freshman running backs. In this case, for Claremont Mud Scripps, as uh, two of them combined for 386 yards and six touchdowns on the ground on Saturday night, a uh, 45-28 win versus Occidental. It's uh, Garrett Cheadle and Christian Turchio who put up big performances. Cheadle goes for 214 yards and five touchdowns on 32 carries, and Curcio with uh, 172 yards and another score on 21 carries as well. Yeah, I don't really know how good the Stags are because their best win all season is going to be that game against WNL a couple of weeks ago. But they are 4-0, and they have won nine in a row. So they could be this year's team that uh, gets through this uh, uh, top spot in the Skyak, which is uh, suddenly becoming a revolving door. Yeah, from year to year. To year. Right, yeah, not obviously from week to week this year. But I was thinking last year, Laverne, and previous years, Cal Lutheran, and that sort of thing. And now maybe Claremont Mud Scripps. For my stat of the week, I've got RPI getting outgained 435 to 192 against Hobart and going only 2 of 13 on third down, 3 of 14 uh, if you include the fourth down attempts. Yet the engineers still found a way to beat the number 22 statesman on the last uh, drive there. They had a key pass interference call that went against Hobart and then the uh, the amazing scramble. You'll see that in the play of the week. Um, rundown as well for the game-winning touchdown. 
Yeah, Keith, you look at numbers like that and you expect to see a bunch of turnovers. There were uh, there were no turnovers in this game whatsoever. Hobart fumbled the ball once but managed to hang on to it. Uh, it's it's kind of mind-boggling. I guess this is uh, this is what a bend but not break box score looks like, I guess. And if you want to come full circle on this whole podcast, this whole amazing week six that we've had here, this was another game where the, the finish was amazing because Hobart didn't take the lead in that one until about a minute 30 left. So if you actually went back to RPI TV, I think they have the game archive, you could spend five minutes, watch a great finish of a game. Hobart drives down, scores, RPI gets the ball, drives down, and, and has the game winner. So put that on your watch list uh, for the next couple of days. That's uh, uh, that's a, a pretty good way to uh, get caught up on the the nitty gritty of that game in a real quick fashion. Uh, let's see. Uh, we have to talk about quick hits. Unfortunately, um, let's see. And I'm going to talk about the worst predictions uh, because it turns out I should not have looked past like Cummings' failure to take its frustrations out on Misericordia last week because uh, the Warriors also failed to do so to FDU Florham either. And, and that's a category where we were trying to pick teams who were going to turn their season around starting on Saturday. Uh, Ryan Tips' pick, Albion, they didn't do so either, nor did Frank Rossi's pick of Cortland. Um, oh, let's see. We uh, brought the over-under category back, and we were almost all of us way over once again. Uh, even picking Guilford versus Hampton City, even knowing it was going to rain, even knowing that Derek Bell, the uh, stud uh, running back for Guilford, was out. I think we all lowered our expectations, but didn't lower them enough. Uh, but here's the kicker. Well, not the, it's not a kicker. It, I don't think it involves a kicker. We weren't asked to pick a winner, but Keith offered one anyway. Uh, and it turned out that Hampton City beat Guilford by 6, 21-15, instead of Guilford winning by 28. Uh, I asked in the column, is it still grass in Hampton City? Uh, of course, knowing that that's the case. After Saturday, however, that might not be the case. Several inches of rain fell uh, on Saturday in a football game being played on that field. I'm not sure how much grass there's going to be uh, for the rest of the season there. You know, you did me- mention earlier on the broadcast, Whitewater is in a bowl, St. John's is in a bowl, Hampton, Sydney also in a bowl, great place to see a game. Those are three of the places where some of those huge attendance figures pop up. So if you're uh, building a new program, build it in a bowl. But maybe with turf. That's true. But I've never seen the bowl part be turf. <laughs> no, that would be a, just, that would be a waste a of perfectly good, uh, perfectly good recycled tires. Right. All right. Uh, the good predictions from Quick Hits. And if you join us every Friday morning, you'll get the six man panel or maybe it'll be five men and one woman at some one woman at some point. Um, you'll get six people's predictions for the week. And we uh, the variety makes it sing. But Ryan Carlson, his prediction this week that somebody would get cute with the game of the week. Uh, all other predictions pale in comparison. And uh that one just it cracked me up and it cracked a lot of other people up too. The, Frank happened to be the, the butt of that joke and was a good sport about it, as I hope I was a good sport about my terrible tweet earlier. The best uh, there the, were some, the best part, Keith. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Is that you know in in the way it's laid out on the page, there's four of us who pick uh, Oshkosh Whitewater, and then Frank is number five, and then Ryan Carlson's prediction is right next to Frank's. Right, and, and totally anticipated without you know in any concert with Frank totally anticipated what was going to happen. Uh, there were some good predi- picks, picks, predictions, whatever you want to call them, predictions. There you go. Um, I'm the one making some... up words, not you. Yeah, well, I'm, I think I join in uh, at least every other week. Uh, there were some good predictions in Quick Hits this week, uh, reasons to have read it. Ryan correctly picked uh, Ryan Carlson now. that he, he correctly picked Salisbury as the top 25 team to be upset. Adam and Frank got Hobart right in that spot as well. Frank and Ryan were the only ones even in the ballpark on Hampton, Sydney, and Guilford's 36 total points. And then Frank and the other Ryan, Tips, correctly picked the Western Connecticut win. I picked that Oshkosh and Whitewater would be the game of the week. Oh, yeah, you get a point for that. <laughs> oh, crap, are we doing points again? That's not till uh, the year in review, but that's really only for the diehard readers, right? I'm looking forward to that. I don't think I've ever won that, by the way. All right, that brings us up to our Twitter question. So let's see. This is from uh, JT, who uh, is his Twitter handle is Hammersauce underscore JT. That's an awesome Twitter handle, by the way. Uh, he asked Keith, will the winner of the Concordia Moorhead St. John's game the final week of the season get an at-large bid? And Keith, do you want to start or do you want me to start? Why don't you take it first? Yeah, I think the question is, um, you know, Concordia started its season with that loss to Jamestown, which is a, a non-Division three school. So 
it, it's just hard to say definitively that uh, Concordia at eight and two, eight and one versus Division three would get an at-large bid. I feel pretty safe to say that St. John's gets in the playoffs if it wins out. Yeah, it's it's a definitely a little early to um, start sorting out who's where at-large bid-wise, but there are some surprising undefeated teams at this point in the season, and uh, that that throws the Pool C picture for the time being uh, into whack. But we've, you know, there have been times when there's like 11 at-large bids going into the last week. There have been times when there when there have been maybe only like three really solid cases, and then three spots up for grabs. So you kind of have to wait to see till about week eight or week nine to see how it it shakes out. But um, if both teams are undefeated going into that game, I would think with the the non-conference record of the Mayak, even though it's a little bit down this year, I would think uh, St. John's is pretty much automatic uh, in Concordia Moorhead. Pretty good shape, but would have to, you know, you know, you need to have someone that you beat too. And so those teams, um, if they're both uh, regionally ranked, which it's almost time to start talking about playoff Woo-hoo. criteria. Um, they'll have that. That'll be a key win for both of them. So I think that'll be a huge game at the end of the season, uh, no, no matter where we stand. Now, I, I think really what playoff, if you're a playoff hopeful and you know you have your team already has one loss, but you're hoping for them to, to stay in it, you're going to be watching games like Co Debut coming up this week, where um, you got two undefeated teams. One of them's going to take a loss, and the other one's going to be the the automatic quali- the leader for the automatic qualifier, which theoretically takes uh, puts one team in the pool C that you now have to keep an eye on. So we'll start to build that list. You'll start to follow them over the course of the year. I know it's a long answer to a short question. I don't think it's an automatic winner of the Concordia Moorhead St. John's game is an at-large bid, but I think it's a fairly safe bet. I had was going to say something else, but uh, I hear the two-minute drill. Your two-minute drill begins now. Yeah, right. Starting the two-minute drill with a pick fest in the NAC. That's the NACC where the Concordia Wisconsin's Aaron Nixon got picked off twice. Benedictine's Ryan Sample was intercepted four times, but it was Sample who got the last laugh with a touchdown pass to Javon McBride with 34 seconds left for a 51-49 win. And by the way, you can probably guess how CUW's last drive ended. Northwestern of Minnesota didn't give up any points in its first three games or lose any of its first five. On Saturday... McMurray hung 38 on the Eagles and handed them their first loss. First mention of the Highlanders on the podcast in how long? Well, since you asked, it was week one of 2012. Thanks for tagging in WordPress that makes that possible. And that was not memorable for Highlander fans because that was regarding their blowout loss at Warburg uh, that capped my four-game weekend to open that season. Let's see, Danny Padrone finally became the winningest football coach in Texas Lutheran history. In their fifth game of the season, the Bulldogs finally got their first win in the 39th of Padrone's career. So that's not terribly notable as a total, right? 39 career wins. But he passed Jim Wacker. So if you've heard of a Texas Lutheran coach ever, that's the guy. He won two NAIA titles, two NCAA Division II titles, and then coached at TCU in Minnesota. In looking at who to put at number 25 on the ballot this week, I realize Randolph Macon in Virginia... Um, Claremont Mudscripts in California. They'll have a common opponent this week, which is super rare in uh, WNL, and that's the second mention of that game in this podcast. I'm not going to ask if you're the source of Randolph Macon's two votes. Uh, so, folks, as a reminder, this is to coaches and SIDs, but mostly SIDs. The longest an interception return could be credited as in college football is 100 yards. Twice in the past few weeks, we've seen schools claiming extra return yards on, on yardage from the end zone. That's an NFL thing. Please be aware, 100 yards is the max. Funny you mentioned that about Randolph Macon. I spent a lot of time looking at some of the undefeated teams uh, when I was putting the ballot together. Uh, I think uh, Wisconsin Lacrosse, Randolph Macon, and um, there was one other team. It was may- maybe Co. I I don't have it handy, but anyway, there are certain teams that are undefeated right now that just they still don't have a signature win, and I'm kind of waiting for one of those on, on some of those teams. Yeah, uh, lacrosse for example is five and zero. Oh. They could end up six and four, be fifth place in the WIAC, but still, they haven't won that many games in a long time. So that's a, it's still a great season for uh, the Eagles, even if they only beat Eau Claire and lose to everybody else the rest of the way. Um, coming up next week, Keith's made some notes. Why don't you take us through them? Oh, all right. Big games next week uh, in the North Coast. Uh, Wittenberg at Denison. We mentioned that, I believe, a couple weeks ago uh, on the podcast when we talked a little bit about uh, Denison. That's a big opportunity. The, the same way 
Concordia Moorhead trying to get over that hump with St. Thomas, um, a team that dominates the conference. Denison has that chance against Wittenberg. Co-ed Dubuque, we mentioned that. Both teams undefeated in Iowa. John Carroll at Ohio Northern. Not necessarily a matchup of unbeatens or anything of that nature, but always uh, that that race to see who will finish behind Mountain Union in the OAC. Always worth watching. Uh, in the NESCAC, Tufts at Trinity. Both those teams are 3-0. and Stevenson, I mentioned, uh, they get Widener, then they get Delaware Valley. So we'll see if they're for real a top 25 team. And then lacrosse, 5-0 and at Wisconsin Whitewater, still undefeated. You'd think, I guess if you're, if you're not schooled in Division Three, you, you see that game on the schedule and say, oh, two undefeated teams from the best conference in the country. Must be a, a barn burner, a great game. Well, we've had our great games already, and uh, we'll, we'll see if lacrosse is, uh, is ready to uh, play at Perkins Stadium. Uh, this week that is such May a Harden. that's been such a classic rivalry too in the past right uh, whitewater kind of took the mantle away from lacrosse in terms of you know being the the team to beat in uh in the yx so that's got that little bit of extra baggage too and i would say that more than one person mentioned to me uh after the game on saturday that it'll be the sixth consecutive uh game or whatever that uh, whitewater's going to face somebody who's undefeated coming into the game obviously you know uh who did they open with? Was it Bellhaven or TCNJ or whatever? Obviously, that team was undefeated because they were 0 and 0, and you know someone came in at 1 and 0. But you know, you get the picture. Uh, now they're you get this point in the season. It's a it's an interesting little thing, even if it, uh, not every unbeaten team is the same. Yeah, at some point that's got to be unprecedented. Uh, also, big games this week. Uh, Pat's number one team, Mayhard and Baylor against East Texas Baptist, which is undefeated and just hung 67 uh, and gained about seven yards per play this week uh, in, a, in a win against uh, McMurray. Barry, <laughs> that's that's uh, Keith's two-minute drill thing that got uh, deleted when the time ran out. Nice. Yeah, just have, it just happened to work out. You didn't I, have to I did the I did the same thing, too, though, in full disclosure. Uh, Wisconsin lacrosse was my uh, extra item that got cut, too. And a uh, big, big game we've been looking forward to in the SAA, Barry at Hendricks. Hendricks still unbeaten and uh, creeping up into the top 25. Yeah, so those are games that are coming uh, up around this week. Uh, don't forget to watch out. For, uh, actually, Keith, good job on the rundown. I Maybe we should switch how we do that. Do you want to take that from now on? Sure, I always do next week's games. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Coming up uh, later today, look for the play of the week. Uh, we've had our voting as a crew. You guys have had your voting as fans, uh, and now we put it all together. Um, so look out for that. Around the region columns hit on Tuesday and Wednesday. Look for uh, Adam Turr's Around the Nation column on Thursday. Quick hits on Friday, and then we'll have week seven. We are, we'll be seven weeks into the Division Three football season. But this was Around the Nation podcast number 157 for the week of October 10th, 2016. Thanks for listening, and uh, tune in for the rest of that coverage throughout the week if you like our podcast please consider rating it and leave a review that will help other football fans find it and thanks as always for following division three football on d3football.com the executive producer of the around the nation podcast is pat coleman production assistance provided by dave McHugh. thanks to our guests josh smith along with uh, uw whitewater cornerback vince mason and thanks to uh, chris lindecki the whitewater sid uh, for their help on this edition of the show and of course to the creator of around the nation on d3football.com and my co-host keith mcmillan so catch us every week from now through december 19th then monthly in the off season and always remember to use the D3FB hashtag on your tweets and Instagram posts. Especially those of you who are running team Twitter accounts on game day, put that D3FB hashtag on it. More people will see it and we'll be more likely to retweet it if that happens to you.